Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Wagner Review podcast. I'm Emily Finkelstein, an MPA PNP student here to speak with you about the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the disability rights movement. I think it is important to note that this podcast is the first published piece on disability rights in the Wagner Review. As aspiring leaders in public service, it is so important for us to advocate for the one in four Americans living with disabilities on issues that impact them as we move forward with our education, our careers, and our futures. Today, as we commemorate the Americans with Disabilities Act, we will hear from Nicole Jorwick, the Senior Director of Public Policy at the ARC, a leading nonprofit organization advocating for and with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and from Abigail Shaw, a lifelong disability advocate who herself lives with a hereditary degenerative retina condition that has caused her to lose her vision. Abigail will share her hopes for the future of the disability rights movement as someone who is deeply and personally impacted by it. But first, a little bit on the history of the ADA. July 26th marked the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The act was signed by George H.W. Bush and was long awaited by the disability community. The New York Times has called the ADA the most sweeping anti-discrimination measure since the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Simply put, the ADA is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of a disability. The disability rights movement was one that was largely shaped by voices. Voices of advocates, families, and people living with disabilities who shared their experiences with segregation and discrimination. One account, which was particularly influential, was told by Lisa Carl. Lisa Carl, a young woman living with cerebral palsy, visited a local movie theater in Tacoma, Washington on May 28, 1988, only to be denied entry by the theater manager, who refused to take Lisa's dollar admission. When contacted later by an advocate on Lisa's behalf, the theater owner said, I don't want her in the theater, and I don't have to let her in. Lisa Carl told Congress when she was testifying in testimony that later led to the passing of the ADA, I was not crying on the outside, but I was crying on the inside. I just wanted to watch the movie like everybody else. Lisa was present on July 26, 1990, when former President H.W. Bush signed the act. He shook Lisa's hand and assured her that she would not be denied entry to another theater. While there has been tremendous progress made in the disability rights movement over the last 30 years, we still have a long way to go to ensure equality and full participation of individuals with disabilities in society. Today, we are going to hear from Nicole Jorwick, who is going to talk to us a little bit about the disability rights movement in 2020. Without further ado, Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us today. ADA is a multifaceted law. In your opinion, is there any one component that you think is most impactful? Um, Sure. First, I want to say thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. I think, honestly, the most impactful part of the Americans with Disabilities Act was, frankly, its existence. It was a recognition of the humanity and rights of people with disabilities to access and to not be discriminated against in several areas. I think... There's, it's made an impact in several areas. I think the employment components have been hugely impact, 
did, although with everything else, there's still a lot of work to do. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. If you were able to make any changes in the ADA at this point, what changes, if any, would you recommend? The biggest component that's missing from the ADA and kind of one of the biggest unfinished promises from the ADA is the statutory backing or the right for community living. If we were to go back in and strengthen the ADA, it would be to put in the components of the Olmstead decision around individuals with disabilities having a right to live in the community and not segregated in institutions and that sort of thing, but also strengthen that because Olmstead has components in it where states can get out of those requirements if there, for example, are budgetary problems, which frankly there always are. And so if it was in statute, it would provide the right to community living that unfortunately people with disabilities don't have, which is why many are still stuck in nursing homes and institutions. That, that's really, that sounds incredibly significant and important. Are there other, to your knowledge, are there other models that we as a society use for housing accommodations, like potentially Section 8, that you think would be replicated well for the disability? Oh, sure. And, and actually, those already exist. There's a housing program that's, that's within, that's Section 8, called Section 811 Housing, that specifically goes to support people with disabilities in community-based housing that's integrated. So that exists. The problem with that is that you need the services to go with the housing. And because of budgetary limitations and the fact that 36 states still have institutions open where a lot of the funding that could go to support community living is, you have 800,000 people on waiting lists. And, you know, fixing the ADA and creating that right would require states to be providing those services. Right, and I'd imagine that disabilities are more successful and happier and more productive when they are in community-based living situations rather than institutions. Absolutely, there's um, decades of research that show that personal outcome measures, quality of life is better for individuals with disabilities integrated into their communities. And on top of that, it's also less expensive. So it's really problematic and frustrating, but the problem is, is that in order to, the, the reason that it's so expensive is the upfront costs, mm-hmm. and it's not, it's easier to not take that on if it's not a right. Got it. That, that makes total sense, and I'm really glad that you brought up community living because I want to discuss with you a, a little bit about the way that COVID-19 specifically impacted the lives of individuals with disabilities. People with disabilities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, perhaps largely due to the living in close quarters in group homes. What can we do to support people living in group homes at this time? Yeah, so that is unfortunately true. There's a study out of Syracuse University from Dr. Scott Landis that shows that people with disabilities have been dying at much higher rates. And part of that is because for many, they are still in those congregate settings, like institutions and nursing homes and group homes. It's important to note that in some states, group homes are, are used to describe large places, but in the disability community, a group home tends to mean a community-based, small living situation. It doesn't mean that there aren't still cases of COVID-19 in those places, but I just want to make that distinction for folks, because unfortunately, because it's a state-based program, things are called different things all over. 
Because of that, we're seeing the high rates of transmission and unfortunately a high debt death rate. And what we need to do is to build access to home and community-based services. Those are the services. So all the services that I'm talking about are funded through Medicaid. So whether that's the nursing home or an institution or somebody receiving services at their own home or in a group home, those are funded through Medicaid. But Medicaid has two parts, the institutional side, so that's like nursing homes and institutions and the whole and community-based services side. The problem is, is that the institutional side is mandatory under the federal law and home and community-based services are optional, which is why people are left on waiting lists because they're optional programs for states to provide. And what we've seen, unfortunately, borne out in with the COVID-19 crisis is what disability advocates have been saying for decades, which is that if you don't have individualized supports in the community or if people are left on their own, we're going to have these problems or in these large settings, we're going to have these public health crises. And that's what we've seen borne out. And so what we need to see coming out of the crisis is an investment in home and community-based services. So there aren't any waiting lists. So anybody that doesn't want to be living in an institution or a nursing home isn't because we're really unfortunately seeing how dangerous those places can be. Right. That's that's really devastating to hear and to think about the fact that there are other solutions. With COVID-19, there's been so much public health information disseminated, obviously critically important. Do you think that the information has been disseminated in an accessible way to people living with disabilities? States have, tr- have made attempts. I think actually what you've seen is a lot of self-advocacy groups in different states have made plain language or graphic-based or video-based information for their friends and colleagues with disabilities, and that's what we've seen as really successful. I'm going to pivot for a second just because you brought up the CDC, just because I think it's something that's important to note around COVID-19, is that you've seen the CDC and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the part of the Health and Human Services Agency that oversees services for people with disabilities and aging adults, uh, require data and reporting on infection and death rates in nursing homes. And, and that's important and we're glad they're doing that, but they're not extending those same requirements to institutions or group homes or intermediate care facilities for people with disabilities. And that's something we're really concerned about. Some states are just are doing tracking, but other states are not. And the lack of transparency is also really concerning. That's something that we've been, one of the many things that we've been yelling and screaming about in D.C. since all this started, because if we're not being counted, then we're not being tracked. That's terrible. Thank you to you and your colleagues at the ARC who are doing amazing advocacy work on that front. In light of the police brutality issues that have surfaced in our country, many people were shocked to learn that people with disabilities were disproportionately victims of police brutality. How do we draw awareness and prevention to this issue? Yes, it's, it's um, definitely people with disabilities, and it's also important to say that it's often people of color who, are also, who also happen to be people with disabilities that are and, uh, even higher disproportionately impacted. And part of the problem is, is that you have law enforcement getting called into situations because there aren't, aren't the right types of supports. Um, and I don't mean that in any way insulting to law enforcement, but if somebody's in a crisis situation, a person with a disability, the police get called in, they don't have the training necessarily, the person's already escalated. That's not always the situation. Sometimes it's just 
there are a lack of understanding of the individual, perhaps. But I, there's terrible cases that I have running through my head that I know about that have, have happened. And part of it is making sure that there's a system so that we don't need to call law enforcement. Some of it's training, but a lot of it is just still the, society, the fact that we need to make sure that we have societies and a community that are included so that if that situation comes up, the person has the tools that they need. One thing that I do want to note in this space, because I've been a little bit concerned or very concerned about it, is that we've seen in a lot of states things rising up like ID cards or registries for people with disabilities with law enforcement. And um, I'm a family member, I have a brother with a disability, and thinking about him having an ID card with a big D on it Aww. has a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, it also opens up somebody to, to vulnerability. Also, you don't want to be having people reaching into their pockets. There's a variety of problems, and we have to make sure that the privacy and rights of individuals with disabilities remains. While those laws are probably well-intentioned, um, I have real concerns around them. When we're, when we're trying to impact the disproportionate deaths of people with disabilities in their interactions with law enforcement, I don't believe that that's the silver bullet. The answer is going to be making sure that either the law enforcement isn't there in the first place or that the, that the law enforcement has the training to understand the limitations of understanding because of whether it's for sensory reasons or cognitive reasons or whatever they may be, they know what, how, to, how to approach the situation so that it doesn't end in a death. Right. It's an incredibly devastating issue, and it deserves our immediate attention. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about 2020. As everyone knows, it's a very important election year. Which specific policies do you think are most critical to advocate for? So uh, it is an important year, and as always, we need to make sure that the access to the polls and access to the voting process is available for all people with disabilities, and that's obviously step number one. It's also important that we're educating all uh, at the national, at the state, and at the local level about the needs of people with disabilities. And it has been really empowering and exciting to see some campaigns already incorporating uh, the needs of people with disabilities in their plans. We saw almost every campaign in the primaries, in the Democratic primaries, release some sort of disability plan. That's never happened. We saw both President Trump and Vice President Biden represented at a forum on disability in June. And so I think the fact that we're seeing that respect given to the community is a huge thing. And it's also important that we're seeing those platforms and policies include things that matter. Um, I've already talked about waiting lists, for example. I've talked about the institutional bias of Medicaid. That's what I'm um, referring to is when I talked about nursing home and institutional services being mandatory and home and community-based services being optional. Those things are being talked about by national campaigns, and that's super important. And that's the kind of thing that we need to happen so that we can do things like make sure that right to life in the community is available for all people with disabilities and that the services are there to support them and that the workforce that's supporting them gets a living wage. There's paid leave components we need to work on. There's workforce pieces. Those are all things that we need to make sure are we're thinking about when we're making decisions about who's going to be 
in local, state, and federal offices. Yeah, no, that, that, thank you so much for that great answer. How can you combine action with policy to bring awareness to disability rights? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's extremely important, and part of why it's important to combine um, advocacy with policy change and action is that you have to grow concern and awareness and a taste for change and a, a thirst for change outside of just the community that you're working within. We've seen the disability community be successful with that, with the lead up to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, with the crawl of the Capitol steps that leaders of the independent living movement and a lot of other disability rights advocates led the sit-in that Judy, Judy Human led around Section 504. And also in 2017, when we were facing huge Medicaid cuts, folks from National Adapt doing a die-in in, in Senator McConnell's office to talk about the importance of the program. All of those, what all of those things did was shine a light on the disparities in the system for people with disabilities. You also had things like the Geraldo Rivera story that exposed the ills in the Willowbrook Institution in New York. Well, those institutions still exist, and how do we make sure that there's a reminder? They might not look the same, but they're still not in, integrated in the community. And so we need to continue to have action, to continue to shine light on these things so that we make sure that people have all the services that they need in their homes and communities, and so that we can, can keep building on disability and employment and just making sure that people with disabilities are part of the fabric of the country. Right. No, that that's incredibly important. And so the ARC has an online action center. Is that correct? And it's is that where people can find some form letters to send to their legislators? Yes, the, the ARC has the ARC.org slash action, and that's our action center. So right now, our top priority is making sure we get some funding in, for, in the next COVID relief package for home and community-based services. We will keep pushing for other big advocacy pushes, and so that's where you can make sure that you get on our list to make sure that you're reaching out to your senators and your representatives to make sure that they're aware of all the things that, that, that I was able to talk to you about today. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Nicole provided us with some great insight as to how we can better support individuals with disabilities through policy and action. Now we will hear from Abigail Shaw, who will tell us in her perspective how we can better support individuals with disabilities in social settings and through advocacy. Abigail Shaw is currently pursuing her Master's of Social Work at Fordham University. <laughs> Abigail, how are you? I'm well, Emily. Thanks for inviting me to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. What are some ways people can support individuals with disabilities in everyday life? There's a couple of ways. If, if you are encountering people with disabilities just out and about, I think it's always good to ask the person first what way that you can be a support to them. And if they say that they're fine, that, that you don't need to take it personally, that they've got it covered and they really don't, you know, they don't need help at that point. But just always asking first is the best way because what I need as, as somebody who is blind may not be exactly what another person who's blind needs or, you know, what somebody who uses a wheelchair needs. It's, it's all 
dependent on the person and they are the best expert on they're capable of. I think that being an ally and looking for ways that systems and policies could be better, even on like a really small social level, like again, for my my lived experience being blind, even on little things like social media, when people post photos, Twitter has something that's built in. Facebook, you actually have to go in and like change your settings. I'm not sure how it works with Instagram, but just providing descriptions of what you're posting and it doesn't need to be a novel, just like acknowledging that you're posting content that a screen reader, which is the technology that somebody who's blind typically uses, it cannot it cannot translate a picture into auditory descriptions. And so if you provide the text, it makes it that much more accessible. So little things like that, or, you know, if there's an event being held and uh, even online these days, like captions are really important. They don't serve, I mean, they're certainly a big help to the deaf and those who are hard of hearing, but captions have been shown that it benefits everybody. There was, and I'm sure you know, a lot of critical public health information disseminated, rapidly changing in the last couple of months in regard to COVID-19. And in your mind, was that information always accessible? Yeah, when COVID first started impacting New York, a lot of the information that was being pushed out was through graphs, and it was not accessible. And all of that information should be available to everybody, especially anytime, but especially when we're considering that it's a pandemic. I think there was a scenario where members of the deaf community, there was a lawsuit against New York State because Governor Cuomo's briefings were not being captioned and there was no live interpreter. People could get the information after it had aired, but that is not equal access and that's not reasonable accommodation. A little bit more about your experience kind of navigating the internet as, as someone who's visually impaired? In all honesty, if I ac- if I go to a site and in the first few minutes, if, if I'm trying to you know, place an online order or um, I'm just browsing the internet and I find this like a site that is not accessible with my, again, I use screen reading technology the most, I'm most likely to just abandon that that site and find try to find out the information or get whatever it is I'm trying to purchase from somewhere else. On some instances, I might try to contact the company or look for the developer who built their site or app and reach out to them to explain how I was, you know, wanting to give them my money and I couldn't, but in a lot of times that takes, it's added energy and time to advocate that I just don't have, but I think it's important to do when I, when I am able, because I don't want, I want to try to pave the way for somebody else, but advocacy does take time and energy and it can be exhausting for, for the disability, for those of us with disabilities to always have to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with public websites? A lot of agencies that are funded by the government or our government agencies, if there are challenges to submitting information on like signing up for benefits or, you know, getting support through government agencies, there there are some instances where those are also not accessible. And so we do have a long way to go. I find, and maybe less and less nowadays because of green initiatives, but when people bring materials to a meeting that are obviously not in Braille and you don't 
have the opportunity to just put it into your computer and a screen reader, like hard copy materials, it will prevent any coworkers who are blind or, or maybe have a cognitive impairment that requires them to read and digest materials in advance from fully participating in the meeting. Is that a conversation that you've had to have or, or something that has occurred? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is still relevant, even the even in our times of doing everything from home and through Zoom and online. Again, whenever someone's screen sharing, my assistive technologies cannot can cannot convert that, you know, that screen share, which is essentially an image into text, and that is accessible to me. So hard copy online, it's so important that we're considering the audience and how information is being digested. Sending out PDFs of forms is often challenging too. Screen readers can't, unless people have done their due diligence and they've tagged and provided like an alternative text. It, yeah, it's so important that people can participate in real time in meetings and in gatherings. So providing the, those, that information is, import, is definitely important. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. What you'd like people to know about the disability community? I'm glad you asked it. Like I said earlier, I think it's always important to ask the person first about like how you can help. And I think it's good to remember that people with disabilities just do things differently. We we still have families. We still want to be in the workforce. We go to school. You know, we have to figure out how we're going to feed our families and we may get in arguments with our loved ones. And so just like recognizing that we're a lot like everyone else, we just get through life in different ways. And I think that helps to bring like a human element to to all of it. Because for so long, I think a lot of the ways our society has view, have viewed disability is from like some medical model of like people need to be fixed or, you know, historically people with disabilities were separate and put into to other spaces where they weren't able to be part of the mainstream. And so that's maybe part of the history of that mentality. But in all, I think it's really important just for people to recognize that people with disabilities are a lot like everyone else. We just live life maybe a little more unconventionally. Thank you for stating that so eloquently. And my last question is, recommending maybe three of your top media like TV, podcasts, movies that you think portrays people with disabilities in an accurate and insightful light? Yeah, one of my favorite authors, his name is Ryan Knight, and he's the Canadian author. He and I share the same visual diagnosis, which is retinitis pigmentosa, and it's a degenerative condition. And I just really love his two books are called Cockeyed, and the other is called Come On Papa, Dispatches from a Dad in the Dark. And I just love how he talks about disability realistically, and he really is, he's the only person I've found that poetically and just, again, realistically is able to talk about the experience of living with vision loss from RP. So those books are great. Crip Camp is a documentary that came out this year, and it it shows the, it's about a bunch of kids who went to a summer camp in upstate New York and were influ- majorly influential in the passage of Section 504 of the Vocational Rehabilitation Act, which later influenced the ADA. And it is on Netflix with audio description, and it's also now on YouTube with 
audio description and without. So it's it's like available to everybody, which is really cool. And then the Disability Visibility Project is led by Alice Wong. She's in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's a woman of color and has a disability, and she's just been doing really awesome things through their website, and they also have a podcast, and they just released ADA 30 in Color, which is some essays by people with disabilities that are also people of color. So those are the three I would highly recommend. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. The one one more that I want to share, which I think is particularly moving to learn about people with disabilities, but to learn about the family members of people with disabilities and, and their experience is Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. It's a really beautiful book that talks about disability and a number of other a number of other identities. So I would highly recommend that one. But I, I again I wanted to thank you so, so, so much for your time, Ab- Abigail. This was incredibly helpful. Yeah, thank you again for including me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. We are so lucky to have the opportunity to hear from amazing advocates like Nicole and Abigail as we commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. While Abigail and Nicole have different backgrounds, both have made the same assertions, that individuals with disabilities need and deserve opportunities, diverse opportunities that meet their individualized needs and wants, opportunities to live, work, and be who they want, where they want. I'm among countless Wagner students who recently demanded that NYU require courses on diversity and equity, as I firmly believe that as aspiring leaders in public service, we need to be prepared to identify and dismantle the systems that perpetuate the oppression of minorities. According to the World Health Organization, people with disabilities remain one of the most marginalized groups in the world. People with disabilities are friends, neighbors, colleagues, veterans, family members, and invaluable assets to our community. So please, advocate for and with people with disabilities to ensure that they are consistently and equally integrated in society.